The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. I've really enjoyed this series through the book of Colossians and the different messages from Michael uh, Davis, Michael Rhodes, Terrence Gray, uh, Sergi. Um, it's been a great time in his word uh, or in this book as Paul writes from prison. And it's, you know, when someone's in prison it, and they are addressing issues in the church, you know that they're important because um, in prison you, you're, you're inclined to be looking at your own needs and yet Paul is so outward facing even in prison and maybe even especially more so in prison and we see his passion in the text before us this morning on the unity of the church and the unity of the body and the importance uh, really the irreplaceable importance of us becoming and being a unified, loving community that we might stand as an, a witness to the world. And if we are not that community, then we are not witnessing to the world. And I think what we see in this text, it, it's so relevant today because um, in the world today, the church has lost so much of its validity and so much of its witness because of this very point. Um, that we are not the unified people of God. So let's go to his word and, and, and listen and think and, and hear this through that lens of unity in the church and the church being the church. Colossians 3, verse 9. Paul writes, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all, and he's in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. You hear that? And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the very word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that indeed you have spoken. And we thank you also that you didn't just stop there. But by your spirit, you gift us. You gift your people eyes to see and ears to hear. You gift transformation in our lives. You come by your spirit. You make your word alive whenever it's read, whenever it's sung, whenever it's utilized. And so, God, you've promised that your word will not go out void. 
And so we look forward to specifically how you're going to make good on that promise this morning in our own hearts and in the midst of downtown church. Oh, Father, I pray that we would not be satisfied with what is. I pray that we would not be satisfied with our view of downtown church, our participation in downtown church. And, oh, God, I just pray that you would come and you would help us to see something new, something that would change the the direction that we're walking, something that would uh, make our hearts move from um, complaining, ungrateful, to thankful, abounding in thanksgiving, hungry for your word, desirous of sharing it with one another, forgiving, oh God, not holding on to grudges. Oh God, you've got to do that because we cannot do that for ourselves. So we look forward to how you're going to bless your word this morning in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to bring it up again, Memphis Tiger football, man, it just, it just keeps rolling, um, and it's so, and yes, all you U of M, I, I'm a, my, my diploma says Memphis State, but some of you may have a University of Memphis uh, diplomas, and man, so many bad, horrible years of Memphis Tiger football. Just 10 years ago, we were talking about shutting the program down, and here we are, 10-1, and one, after uh, that victory yesterday at, at USF and uh, the Houston game. We were down like 20-14, to 14, and then we scored 35 unanswered points, uh, you know, in a row. And it's just unbelievable uh, what's going on and what's happened. And, and you think about that, and you ask yourself, well, what happened? How was it turned around? And um, as I go back, and I read a bunch of interviews with Mike Norvell this week, and um, and I, I listened to him, you know, even on college game day and his interviews on college game day. I, I continue to hear this theme of um, being bought in, playing for the person next to you. And then in his interview uh, on college game day, he said this. He said, the greatest thing about Memphis Tiger football is who we get to play for. And before the game, he looked at his team. He said, team, let's go shine for Memphis. And the, the, the message that he is relaying over and over again is this is not about you. It's about the guy next to you, this team in the locker room, and this city. It's not about how bad of a night you had. It's not about how you feel. It's not about, oh, I want to go spend time with my girlfriend, or I want to go do this, or I want to go do that. It's about you sacrificing for the good of the team. It's about you shining, not having, you know, manipulating your life and your circumstances to get everyone to shine their light on you, but it's you shining your light on everyone else. That is how a team wins. That is how a team turns around. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to the church of Jesus Christ. The, the image or the, the analogies, the metaphors for the church is we are the body of Christ. Each one of us are members. We are the bride of Christ. We are not individual brides. We are the bride. We are members that make uh, the beautiful reality of, of the bride of Christ being presented to him. Uh, if you've been to a wedding, what's the, you know, the, the apex of the, the ceremony is what? The doors fly open and the bride comes in. 
But we all look at the groom, don't we, to see his face. That's the, where do we get this imagery? We didn't make this up. This is our future. This is our destiny. This is where this is all going. We, the bride of Christ, are going to, the doors are going to come open. We're going to be presented to Christ, and there are going to be tears coming down his eyes. It will be finished. Oh, what a glorious, glorious day. But it's this, this, this image of we are a temple, and we're all living stones. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's the one or the many and the one. This whole concept that the many make up the one. But what happens when the many become ones? <laughs> when we start thinking it's about us. When we start forgetting that we must be sacrificing for the good of the body and for the good of our neighbor, and we must not come to church and we must not exist in community thinking about what others are to give to us, but what we are to give others. When we think about what others are to give to us, I promise you, every single time we will be disappointed, hurt, and we will be put out. It's just the reality. And, and so... We have to ask ourselves the question this morning, to what degree are we seeing downtown church as a team to sacrifice for over against an entity that's supposed to sacrifice for me and meet my needs? This is what Paul is getting at. What, how many of us see even the church as a team whose goal it is to shine for Jesus? That's what he's saying. Do everything you do and where to do, whatever you do, you know, everything. Why? Because he is our breath. He is our life. He is everything. He's given us everything, thus we give him everything. We owe him everything. It's all about him. And if we are not united in that purpose, if we are not united in that mission, then the church becomes, begins to look like anything but the church. It begins to look like a business. It begins to look like something where everybody comes in and you're looking to the paid help and the paid staff and you know, even the volunteers to serve you. And Paul is saying, no, that is, not, that is not what Jesus came to live and die for. And, and he's really saying, so what is the answer? He's, really, he's been telling us the answer for um, you know, two and a half, three chapters now. And that is, um, if Jesus, Jesus is the answer. But here is how Jesus is the answer. That's what we're going to look at this morning. But Jesus is the answer in this way. If Jesus is not everything to the members of the church, he is nothing for the church. If he's not our everything, then he's nothing. It's the only way it works. It's this concept like, you know, the University of Memphis football team. I mean, Memphis football can be a little bit of something, you know, but it's really something to make me feel better about me. That's not going to work. In the church, Jesus has to be everything. He has to be your functional everything or he's nothing. Well, let's, that's the idea. That's the concept that Paul is working and fleshing out here. But we've got to, um, we, we've got to work it out too. So let's do that. First, first off, if Jesus is going to be everything and Jesus being everything makes us a team, makes us the church... Um, We've got, to, we've got to really dissect what's keeping us back from being the church. And the first thing I want us to see is that idolatry of race, religion, culture, and work kills community life in the church. And I'm alluding to this whole thing. There's no Jew or, you know, there's no Jew or Greek, uh, circumcised, uncircumcised, uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. Christ is all and in all. So 
if we are if we have some type of idolatry of our race, our religion, you know, religious practice, uh, culture, and work, it kills community life. Let's flesh that out. Uh, we're all going to experience that, many of us this week, because it's Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving means uh, family gatherings, and family gatherings means t- tense and awkward moments. Uh, because everybody's got that aunt, everybody's got that uncle, everybody's got that person who doesn't know how to shut their mouths at the dinner table. And here are several things that, that I'm just going to get. I don't want you to be that aunt or uncle, so I'm going to help you a little bit. Here are some things that you sh- should not say at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Number one, hey, when are you going to make me a grandparent? Don't say that. Do not say that to your children. Uh, I think your gluten allergy is all in your head. Don't say that. Don't say that. Are you really going to eat all that? Don't say that. There's always that aunt, or that uncle. That you know, they're probably doing keto or something. You know, and <laughs> sorry. Hey, Jesus is big enough. We can even. There we go. How about those impeachment hearings? Don't, don't bring that up. Don't bring that up. Are you dating anyone yet? No, don't do that. Or, this is even worse, when are y'all going to get married? Yeah, not good at a family gathering. Um, I don't know if this will resonate with you, but uh, it resonates with me. Who forgot to put the marshmallows on the sweet potato casserole? You know, I mean, that is how you do a sweet potato. Can I get an amen? You don't have a sweet potato casserole without marshmallows. If you do, I am leaving dinner. Thanksgiving, it's not Thanksgiving unless there are marshmallows on the sweet. Wow. Take our food seriously. Um, yeah, don't sit at the table and look at, you know, the cousin that just got the new job. They, they pull in with a new car. So how much are they paying you anyway? Yeah, don't, don't talk about money. Yeah, let's just stop there. Uh, I may get in trouble if I keep going. Um, wh- why do we do this? I mean, why, why does this kill unity in, in, at the Thanksgiving supper? It's because what we're showing is that our food preferences, our, um, our, our, our cultural um, um, you know, uh, commitments, our opinions are more important to us than our family. We're, we're holding these laws up and, you know, and we're killing each other in and through them. And, and, and that's what Paul is talking about here. Um, he, he says, look, I mean, he deals with it in, in the book of Galatians. It's really the whole thrust of the book of Galatians. There are some believers, when you know, Paul says circumcised or uncircumcised, that's the whole message of the book of Galatians. Uh, there is no circumcised or uncircumcised in the church of Christ. What, what that means is, okay, if you want to get circumcised, great. If you don't, great. No big deal. Well, you tell a Jew that, and those are fighting words. Because for a, you know, a few thousand years, um, to be circumcised equated to being Jewish. You know? And how many things do we equate to being Christian? Um, our political party, our political views, our, our stances on political issues, our stances on religious issues, Christian religious issues. And, and Paul comes to the believers in, in Galatians, in Galatians 5, 6, and he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But the only thing that counts is 
faith working through love. If we're not loving each other, if we come to downtown church and I say, you have to baptize your baby to be a real Christian. Oh my goodness, come on. Really? I can have my theological view. You can have your theological view. But the only thing that counts is faith working through love. It's respect. It's honoring one another. And that is a stage that we want to be on uh, and a message that we want on that stage because what does the world do? The world says, you know, to their enemy, kill them. You know, the world says, cast them out if they don't agree with us because we are the righteous. No matter what your side is, it doesn't matter. And yet... What The power of the gospel is a power to create a different community, the community of heaven. I mean, if we're storming out of the church because our feelings were hurt or someone disagreed with us, or then friends, we're not believing the gospel. It's a gospel issue. That's what was going on here. Why? Because... Uh, The glory of Christ must be everything to us. Jesus lived, died, and rose to empower his bride to be a community of truth and love that self-sacrificially lives lives for the glory of God and the good of neighbor. But what was happening in Colossae is Susie was eating pork, and she even forgot to wash her hands before so, breaking the cleanliness laws, and it jumped all over Sarah's Jewish sensibilities. And, and Sarah just couldn't, you know, control herself. So she whispered, you know, to all her, her Jewish-leaning Christian friends, um, can you believe her? And, and it can be that subtle. That's how we fell in the garden. What did, what did the devil say uh, to Adam? Did God really say? It was a little whisper in a corner. Friends, our little whispers in the corner are more powerful than we can possibly imagine. It is killing the church, the unity in the church. Um, And and that's why Paul is not writing saying, oh, guys, help me make a prison break. I'm dying over here. Why he is more concerned with unity in the church and the glory of Christ than he is about his own circumstances in prison. Bob seen planting his garden on the Sabbath, which Abraham can't even fathom. You, you, cannot lift a, you can't lift a rake. You can't lift a shovel on the Sabbath. Are you kidding me? Tradition, you know. <laughs> and these Gentile believers, what are you talking about? And what does Paul do? He couldn't come and say, hey, all right, guys, here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. He said, no, it's neither the Sabbath nor Sabbath observance or non-Sabbath observance. It's faith working itself through love. That's what's important, and that's where we have to be. And so so we have to do some work, dear friends. We've got to say, what is it in our hearts that is keeping me from loving people in this church? This is so not hypothetical. This is not high theology. This is high theology with incredible practicality. In fact, all the theology of the Bible has incredible practicality. And it's those that keep it up in the clouds that we want to stay away from because they don't really understand the theology in the clouds because there is no theology in the clouds. All the theology in the clouds is supposed to rain down on the people and and be part of our lives. So we've got to look at our hearts. Let me just read a few things. If impeaching Trump is your identity, do you understand you're not going to be able to love those that might be Republicans around you? 
if keeping the Democrats out is your identity, you will not love Republicans. Or you will not love Democrats, excuse me. If white culture, you know, if the Civil War history is your identity, you're going to alienate your black brothers and sisters around you. If, if black culture, black heritage is your identity, I'm not saying it, it shouldn't be important, but if it's your identity, then you will naturally and unavoidably alienate yourself and isolate yourself and be standoffish to your white brothers and sisters. If being seen as generous and not being seen as stingy or a privileged white person is your identity, you will kill anyone that threatens that identity. If living a just life is your identity or being seen as one who lives a just life is your identity, you'll kill anyone that threatens that image. If your gender or your sexuality is your identity or not being seen as a closed-minded evangelical is your identity, or not being seen as a liberal is your identity, then you will judge and pull away from whoever poses a threat to that idol. Do you see it? It's just natural. It's practical. Paul is saying there is hope for us. Jesus can set you free. Jesus can set you free from having to look to false identities that are only going to let you down, that are only going to leave you disappointed and unfulfilled. He gives us a mission. It's the glory of God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to Him. It's what Paul is saying in verses 10 and 11. He, he says, the new self. He says, don't lie to each other. But he doesn't just say, don't lie to each other. Don't lie to each other. Uh, but, you know, the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after its image of its creator, here there's no, or he reminds them of the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, in your new identity, there's no Jew or Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, which is um, really pointing to educational level. A barbarian is an uneducated person. There's no, you, you don't even have that category. You don't say, oh, he's uneducated, oh, she's educated. No, there is no barbarian or Scythian, which, man, these guys were like, uh, they love murder, they love blood, they were just horrible, horrible, you know, people. Well, there's no Scythian. In other words, there are no outcasts or sinners. Uh, no Scythian. Slave or free. People that owe money and are indebted to, you know, Chase or <laughs> whatever bank and have to pay it all back or the student loan. You know, there's no slave or somebody who does Dave Ramsey and he's totally, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. But Christ is all in and all. The new self, the Christian self, is being renewed according to the pattern of Christ. When, when Jesus becomes your identity, you are now freed to be the community of God's people. All right? That's the first thing. The second thing, when Jesus is your functional identity, you move from using to loving people. Um, when, you know... A couple of years ago, um, I was talking to uh, someone that I had met, and um, anyway, I, I'd met a, a, um, an older man, and he told me that he um, had been in prison for many years for shooting someone. And I asked him, I said, well, why did you shoot, you know, he was 18 or 19 years old, and he said, I, I asked him, I said, why did you shoot the guy? And he said this. Because he disrespected me. And, and I, th I thought about that. 
And, and I think this passage is really dealing with this. In verse 8, Paul says this, But now you must put, away, put them all away, all the old person stuff away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. Okay? So James dissects this for us in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Listen to what James says. You know, we're talking about why, why would we go at somebody? Why would we want to even murder somebody? And Jesus equates the two. If you're angry in your heart, you know, with someone, you're guilty of murder. He said that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 4. Um, and um, so I'm not reaching here. And, and James proves this too. This is what James says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. What is happening here, and I've read this, that, those verses, I don't know how many times throughout my Christian life, but something clicked for me. All of this really clicked for me this week in thinking through um, unity in the church and you know, Paul saying, hey, get put off malice, slander, and all this, and what is driving you know, murder and anger and gossip and all the division inside the church. Um, and, and here it is. It's, um, if, if culture, race, gender, work is my true functional identity, then I need you to prop that up in me. And I'm using you to make me feel the only way that Jesus can make me feel. I'm, I'm using you, I'm using every relationship to manipulate, and I'm really depending upon them to make me feel the, the only way that Jesus can and should make me feel. Um, here's how this works. I was playing tennis, told you I'm playing tennis, about the whitest thing. Well, not, not so white anymore. Uh, we got... Uh, some players coming up, African-American players, and obviously Serena, um, Venus, and a host. But anyway, playing tennis. And I'm playing with guys. I don't even know my partner. I just showed up at a match, uh, playing in a league, showed up at a match. He's on my team, but I'd never met him before. And two guys I definitely never met before. And we're playing. And, and in between games, some of the, one of the other guys on the other team looked it up and said, Hey, so what do y'all do for a living? I'm the first one to go. I'm a pastor. Crickets. Crickets. So immediately I go, okay, well, here we go. My other guy, you know, and then my partner says, oh, I'm a FedEx pilot. Well, immediately, oh, FedEx, you know, they're talking. I'm just kind of over there, you know. I, as they talk, as they're connecting, as they're, you know, they're going, the more they're connecting, the more isolated, alone, small, insignificant, worthless, you know, I'm kind of melting in my heart. But then I'm like, Oh, no, no, no. These old jerks aren't going to make me, you know. <laughs> then I'm coming at it, anger, wrath, malice. The old self is coming alive, baby. There you go. And then I remember the gospel. I don't need the justification of a guy I've never even met before to make me feel good about me. Because my Jesus has already told me who I am. 
When I use the word identity, that's what I'm talking about. That's what we're talking about. Listen to what Paul says uh, in these verses. Put on then, and he doesn't just give us the law. Put on then, go be compassionate, kind, and all. No, put on then as God's chosen ones. Oh, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. If he had just said, hey, go be nice. That's what my mom says. I got, you know, whatever. But, oh, wait a minute. Richard, you don't respond in flesh to the people across that net. You respond as one whose God has known from before the creation of the world. You have been on his heart before the creation of the world. You did everything you can do to make him hate you, and he didn't. In fact, he sent his son Jesus to live under the law, to obey that law for you, so that he doesn't stand far off and say, obey, 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 and maybe I'll love. No, he sent his son down to obey it for me, and then he gives me credit for obeying the law completely. And then he takes my sin and puts it on Jesus and crushes him, humiliates him, mocks and spits on him, sends him to hell for me. And then he, the great transfer, I get what he deserves, eternal love and acceptance and delight of the Father and he, because he got what I deserve. And there's a glorious hope for me in heaven. Now go be compassionate, kind, love. <laughs> now, the greatest of these is love. Now, go let peace reign in your heart. It's not law. It's get bathed in the gospel and then start living out of that gospel. You see, whatever your functional trust is in these moments determines your reaction and the quality of our community. It is important that you believe the gospel not just for you, but for me. And everyone around you. If I'm grumpy in my marriage, it's not just my problem. It's my wife's problem. And when my children, now they're gone. But when my children were little, it was their problem. My sin affects them. My, my not believing the gospel affects them. It's the same way in the church. If you are not saturating your heart in the gospel, then you are killing your neighbor. You are a detriment to this body. Don't leave. Repent. I mean, think about our marriages. When I am actively believing that Jesus is everything for me, I don't need my wife to compliment me. I'm not so, you know, I'm not so sensitive that after I preach a message, I wait all afternoon for her to say, good sermon. I would never have, I, you can ask her, yeah, quite often, quite often. You know, at that point, she just ought to say, Believe the message that you just preached. And uh, is Jesus really your functional trust? Uh, there you go. I mean, but take our marriages. I don't need, we don't need our spouse. Then I can love her. I can love, if she's in a bad mood, I can love her. I don't need her to be in a good mood for me. If Jesus is my functional trust, do you see it? Work relationships. You don't need your boss. You don't need your employees to be for you what only Jesus can be. I mean, oh man, nobody's completely satisfied with their boss and their job. If you are, you're lying, or you've only worked for them a day, you know? <laughs> because all have sinned. We're all messed up. Every system, every company, every employer, every employee, we're all jacked up. We all have our issues, and we don't, and we can't leave it at home. It's going to be right there in the workplace. Well, if Jesus is my functional trust, okay. All right, my boss told me to do this. I'll go do it, you know? Or my employee isn't, you know, uh, 
giving me what I, you know, they're not making me feel like the greatest boss on the planet. That's okay. I know who I am in Jesus. So I can love. Maybe I can sit down with them and say, what's going on? Help me understand. Are you, are you having, you know, tell me about your life. Tell me your story. All of a sudden, we don't need, we're not using people. We are loving people. And then we come down to the church. If when, when we are believing the gospel at downtown church, we don't need each other to prop up our cultural, racial, or religious idols. Now we're getting close to home. Maybe the best way to look at this is kind of going at it from the back door. And I think a lot about this. Why um, is, um, why is Second Pres, a church like Second Presbyterian Church, or a church like Mississippi Boulevard, so easy to go to? Second, if you're white, obviously, Mississippi Boulevard if you're African-American. Um, why? Why are they so easy? It's because there are, there's a pervasive shared social structure in those churches. I, I am white. I grew up basically in East Memphis. If I go to Second Pres, I walk into a Sunday school class. I look like everybody else. I talk like everybody else. I'm even a minister. Oh, I'm a minister there. Oh, I'm, where's the pedestal? Let's get him up. Let's, Lift him up on that pedestal. Let's, I can talk about, you know, uh, snow skiing, you know, or I can talk about uh, going to Pickwick Lake, or I can talk about tennis, or I can, and everything, and, and there's all these cultural pervasive, pervasive cultural structures just firing off in all of us, and oh, this is the best church ever. Nothing about Jesus. I, you know, I can have an experience and not even be thinking about the sermon. Not even be thinking about I don't even need the teaching because we have this pervasive social structure. The same over here at Mississippi Boulevard. Everything in common. We get each other. We've got the same struggles. We can say the same things that we would never say over here. And we can say the same things that we would never say over here. Why? Because of the pervasive social structure. But what happens? When you put uncircumcised and circumcised, Scythian, um, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Greek, what if you put them all together in one body? You better start creating a pervasive gospel structure. <laughs> because we, that, that is how it works. But here's the problem. We've been doing pervasive social structures for so long, pervasive social structures for so long, that we've never had to depend on a pervasive gospel structure. And that, yes. And so, and it's natural. It's not that we we're trying not to get along. We're, it's not that we're trying. We are trying. We're trying to understand each other. But the reality has to be, the gospel has to be our, 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 our personal pervasive commitment and ultimate commitment. And, and what does the gospel say? Well, how does this work? The gospel tells Richard Reeves, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means you, Richard. That means there's nothing that is untouchable. No experience, no cultural leaning, no theological. Everything is on the table. And, and therefore, you, well, how do I do that, God? Because I found so much identity in these things. You do it by finding your identity in me. 
And this can become what the, what a, what a, a cross-ethnic, across a generational, across everything, across class church can become the most healthy, healthy body because our, our, our idols are being exposed and we're being driven to Jesus constantly. And we're growing. We're growing up in Him. Not by changing each other, but by lifting Jesus high. And that gets to the third point. God's word and worship is the work of a church that functions as a team. I was, all of this seems so disjointed. If you just go home and read it, you're like, it just seems like a bunch of parts. But man, once I started seeing that this is what Paul was addressing, this unity in the church. And, you know, look at these, uh, the last few verses. Um, it, just, it seems like out of nowhere. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and then singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What is it? Where does that? Why? Because that is the pervasive social structure of his church. That's what it is. The word of God. Being so grounded in the Word of God, being so transformed, being so actively engaged with the Word of God, that that's what's coming out of us. You know the way that we can, we can know each other, and I don't want to leave, leave out our Hispanic brothers, our, our Asian brothers. You know, it's, so we need to have more, you know, I'm going left and right, but we need, uh, you know, and, and also older, younger, all the little, you know, uh, pools of, of pervasive social structures um, in our church body. Um, the only way that, that we're going to come together, what, what, you know, what a, um, a 25-year-old can give me is the encouragement of, you know, I was reading Romans 3 the other day, and this is how it impacted me. Oh, okay. I've told you before, I have learned, my theology has expanded. It, it, my mind has been blown. My heart has been expanded by doing life with my African-American friends here, doing worship with my African-American friends here. Unbelievable. I, you have introduced me to the Holy Spirit. You, I, I could just give you example after example after example of how listening to you're, you know, from, from the, the struggles and trials of an African-American, the African-American struggle in Memphis, how the Word of God is radically, you know, the application and, the, and, and, and um, um, you know, the, the, the perception of it is so different and to me richer and fuller. It's incredible. That's what we need. That's what Paul is saying. He's not just saying, go study your Bible so you can feel good about yourself. He's saying, get filled up on the Word. Start, let it just be governing your heart and mind so that you can pour it out on other people. Where you don't have to talk about tennis or Pickwick Lake or what, you know, the impeachment hearings or whatever. You talk about Jesus because what we all want to hear is, man, I'm hurting can you help me? I mean, what happens when we're vulnerable in community? I have never been vulnerable and somebody come up to me and say, man, you need to put a button on it. You know, you need to stop that. Vulnerability invites vulnerability. When you start saying, I'm hurting. I don't have it all together. I need you, brother. I need you, sister. You got to be praying with me. We got to be uniting together. I need you to speak the word to me because I can't even open my Bible. I'm hurting so bad. That is community. That is family. That is authentic. That is something authentic. And then worship. Paul Tripp says this. He said, corporate worship is designed to present the gospel 
so that hearts gripped by complaint become hearts ignited with gratitude and worship. Folks, I w- I'll just be honest with you. I came in here this morning, and my heart did not feel engaged. But after 30, 35 minutes of being led by this team, by my brothers and sisters, by giving into it, by listening, by saying, God, crying out to God, get it in my heart. It's in my mind. Get it in my heart. I need it. Don't let me get up on this stage and try to preach the word when it's not real to me. Don't let that happen, God. What happens? I came up here so filled up. But how did it happen? My brothers and sisters poured into me. They, they rehearsed all week. They, they, Adriana picked out the songs in light of my sermon. So it was driving my, the message of my sermon. That's how it happens. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, not judging and ostracizing one another, teaching and admonishing, encouraging one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Counter your critical, insecure, selfish thoughts with God's word so that you can pour it out on someone else. Come to worship and maybe be singing throughout the week. Maybe that's what our homes need, is we need to hear those hymns, those spiritual songs. We need thankfulness going on, not complaint. This is the kind of community that we are to be. Jesus, I I love this, and we're basically, I think, yeah, we're out of time. Um, So much more I could say, but, I mean, you look at Jesus and his view of the scriptures, it's, it's crazy. I mean, he quoted 24 out of 39 Old Testament books. Um, He didn't make a move unless he was confident it was in line with his father's word. You know, I mean, he took one word, not, he said, hey, I didn't come to abolish the word. Don't get, don't mistake what I'm doing. Every jot and tittle, these are like, you know, the smallest Hebrew letter, the, you know, the, um, just, you know, he would not make a move without God's word. And that's the kind of people that we need to be. So, downtown church, are we going to believe the gospel? Is Jesus going to be our identity to the point that we can love each other? Is Jesus going to be so much to us? Is his word going to be so much to us that we have commonality and we're going to pursue each other and stop looking at each other with suspicion? In our marriages, are we going to let Jesus be our identity to the point that we don't need our spouse to do it for us? At our jobs, at our school, wherever we are, as children of this church, stop looking to your parents to be your identity. Let Jesus be your identity. Let him be all in all because, dear friends, he will not let you down. Do you need to come to Jesus? Do you need to commit yourself? Do you need to say, this is a direction that I need to move my life? It definitely is for me. I'd be shocked if it's not for you. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are all in all. We need nothing but you. When we have you, we have everything. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your kindness, for your meekness, for your tenderness with us. Thank you for your ability and your willingness to admonish us kindly, even strongly with your truth. Lord Jesus, you are everything we need, and we have you completely. May we walk in faith in you, and may you 
Uh, oh God, bless our marriages, bless us in the workplace, bless our businesses, bless, oh God, our children, bless our families, bless this church. May we be one and may we act as one that the world might know that Jesus lived, died, and rose, and there is hope for them too. Oh God, would you make that a reality? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.